Exodus 1 through 14. Uh, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were opposed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is the story that opens up the book of Exodus, which is a fantastic book. If you've not been reading with us and would like to start, I recommend just go ahead and start right here in Exodus, and uh, you just follow through, and if you have time to pick up Genesis, fine. It's just a fascinating uh, uh, book, and I just hope you, I hope you get a chance to read it, because we see in the book of Genesis, we note that God had created this beautiful world that he meant for human beings to inhabit and to care for as his representatives. It's as if the world were a temple, and we were his image in the middle of that temple. We're called to take the raw resources of this world and use it in order to bless culture and bless one another. Instead, of course, as you know, in the third chapter of Genesis, humans decided that while God had given them this world, they could run it better without God's influence. And so we decided we would go our own way. So this beautiful world, Act 2, is broken by human rebellion. And that brokenness meant that we naturally have a longing for God, but we feel distance for God. We have a love for beauty 
beauty, but we feel like beauty is always just outside of our grasp. We want to have relationships and intimacy and closeness with people, but it's like we can't quite get as close as we want, and we end up hurting the people we really care about. And we want to have a career and build a life that blesses the world, but what actually happens is that our businesses and our culture and our systems all are designed often to, often they're designed to, to push other people down at our expense, and we don't have shalom in this world. So the brokenness of the world has been begun by human rebellion, and it's called dissonance, it's caused dissonance between us and God, between us and one another, between us within ourselves, and also between us and this creation God has given to us. And so Genesis began that story of rescue in the 12th chapter when God called a pagan out of Babylon his name was Abram, and he said, come, and I will make of you a great family, and through you a great nation, in whom and through whom all nations of the world will be blessed. So God began, Act 3, this rescue project. Now, what we found in Genesis is that God's rescue project was in order to build a family. So in Genesis, we have the building of a family. First it was Abraham, then it was Isaac, then it was Jacob, and then it, were ja- then it was Jacob's 12 sons, one of whom, Joseph, was one whom God had used to protect that family so that they were saved from the famine in Canaan because Joseph had been blessed by God to become a leader in Egypt. That's all part of the Genesis, of the Genesis story. So when Genesis, one, Genesis ends, we find the people of Israel are now a family of 70 people. Seventy people, including Jacob and his children and his grandchildren and everybody involved with that. Seventy people living on the, off the fat of the land in Goshen. Not Indiana, but Goshen, Egypt. And that's where they were. And everything seems really good. But when Exodus opens up, as you notice, we find that things are no longer good. We have the names of the sons of Israel printed for us in the first few verses of that. We find that Joseph had died and that, and, and that the God's blessing had been given to them. In fact, the, 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 prom, the, the command of Scripture to be fruitful and multiply seems to be ful- being fulfilled in the people. Um, in the people of, uh, 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 of Israel as they've grown. It says in verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. But, it says, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. We're talking about generations of time. 400 years have passed by the time Exodus begins to open up the story of of Moses. 400 years. That's back to the pilgrim days virtually, isn't it? It's a long time ago in, in that day. So many generations have come and gone. And now this new king of Egypt sees these people of Israel. They've grown exceedingly numerous and they're multiple multiplying, and now this other ethnic group within his walls are becoming a threat for him, and so he begins to enslave them. So God then, who has begun to rescue by calling a family, now is going to rescue by building a nation. Now we have a nation developed because the people of Israel, by some counts, had ultimately grown to about two million people, large group of people. And so now we see that the book of Exodus tells us how God begins that rescue project, not to individual persons, but rather to the whole nation. 
In the past, God had revealed himself to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to, and then to Jacob. And now we see him revealing himself to Moses, who then is going to be the deliverer of his people. As Joseph was the deliverer who came to a safe place for the people to live in Egypt, now Moses is the deliverer who's going to take these people out of Egypt, which has now become a place of slavery and into the promised land. That's what the book of Exodus is about. And so what God is doing is beginning that long process of rescue and building a a nation. This is, in effect, the birth of a nation. So this is a story about God's rescue. And in the book of Exodus, we find that God has rescued them from Egypt. Now, how does God rescue his people? How will God go about doing that? I debated on how to do this message this morning. I decided I'd only talk about these first couple of chapters because now you're reading it and hopefully you'll be able to follow this story along. Because as you know, and you've watched the movie, but I hope you read the story, as you know, God calls a man named Moses who becomes the deliverer of his people. How does God rescue us? Well, there are four things that are hinted at in these first two chapters that I think are really instructive for us to see the backdrop of this story of rescue and also four things, I believe, that can help us as we think about our need, and we do need it, our need for rescue in our lives. How does God rescue his people? Number one, God rescues us by setting us free from slavery to false gods. God rescues us by setting us free from slavery to false gods or false masters. Notice how this narrative begins. As I mentioned, they had come to Egypt to escape famine. They had multiplied and flourished. The king was threatened by this, and so he, it says, made slaves of them. Verse 9, he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. God came to rescue these people from what had become slavery for them. And the 14th verse, it, it's, it, it's so filled with words in the Hebrew language that we just can't translate it accurately into our language. The 14th verse says, And they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and with all kinds of work in the field and all their work. They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. A lot of words repeated there. But here would be the literal translation of verse 14. If you could do it word for word. They made their lives bitter with serving in brick and mortar and with every kind of serving and with every kind of serving they made them serve. In other words, they made them work hard as slaves and servants. These people were rescued from slavery. And that, was what, that is what God wanted to do for them and for us. He wanted to rescue them from slavery, and he wants to rescue us from slavery. Now, we're not slaves, right? Well, we are a slave. Everybody is a slave of something. Everybody is. You cannot not devote your heart to something. You cannot do it. 
You will devote your heart to something, and that thing will become your master. And if it's not the God who made you, that master will enslave you. That's what happens. You know it's true. Yes. Uh, God wants to set us free from slavery. God wants to set us free from the false gods that we worship so that we can worship the true God who made us. See, these people, if you know the story, you know that even after God rescued them, a lot of them didn't like it. They liked life better where they were, right? They, you know, they got sick of that manna, that banana banana bread that God made, (laughs) And the manna cakes and the manna waffles and the manna souffle and manna coming out their ears, they didn't like it. They wanted some good old-fashioned, do you know what? Leeks and onions, right? They wanted to go back to Egypt, they said. You see, they had found that their slavery in Egypt in some ways was better for them than the freedom God had provided for them. Yeah. If we serve anything but the God who made us, that master makes us a slave of that I just had someone today, This I, he won't mind, I'm sure, show me a verse in Scripture which talked about the perils of strong drink and how the, that can cause us to become enslaved to that. Yeah, we know that's true, but it can also be true that we become enslaved to other people's opinion of us, that we become enslaved to our own comfort, we become enslaved to our own bank book, we can become enslaved to our job, all these things. We are called to worship and serve the God who made us. Now, if you watch, uh, uh, you know, Charlton Heston, you know what he often says, let my people go. Or if you watch American Idol season seven, worst audition ever, some of you know, let my people go. Some of you remember that? Uh, me neither. I had to look it up. Uh, <laughs> Well, I will watch American Idol with my wife when it gets down to about 12. Not before that. I don't want to see all that stuff. But, you know, in the Bible, Moses didn't simply say, let my people go. He didn't. He always said something like this. Let my people go that they may serve me. God says, Let my people go that they may serve me. That's found in 716, 8-1, 20, 9-1, 9-13, 10-3. Whenever Moses shows up, he says, God has a word for you, Pharaoh. Let my people go so that they may serve me. So that they can hold a feast for me, it says in one instance. The book of Exodus doesn't just say that they got set free, but rather they got set free in order to serve the true God who loved them, made them, and called them to be his people. We are set free not just from other things, but in order to serve God. The book of Exodus starts in slavery... But it ends in worship. You're going to be reading through it. You're going to get to the 25th chapter. You think this is all interesting. And then from chapter 25 to 40, you're going to get bored to death. Because he's going to tell 25, uh, 15 chapters all talking about how to build that tent that's going to be right there in this spot where they can come to worship him. This is the way to make it. And you're going to think, what's the big deal? Well, this is because this is a place of worship where God can finally be with his people. The God who had been uh, pushed away by human rebellion now is able to dwell among his people. And so this is the opportunity for us to be together. And so it's kind of like the bride planning for the wedding. 
I don't know how these colors of this colors. I don't know this kind of this kind of uh, settings. This is what I'm going to do. It's going to be beautiful. Why? Because we're celebrating the union of a man and a woman, right? And in the tabernacle, Jesus, God rescued them in order to bring them so he could have union with them as the God who made us with the people whom he loved. That's why the scripture image talks about the church or the people of God as his bride and God as his bridegroom. Yes, that God calls us from slavery in order to set us free to become his people. We are not just rescued from, we are rescued for. And until we bow down before the beauty and glory of God, we're never really, truly free. So Jesus, the rescue that he brings us is a rescue from the false masters to which we give our lives. And if you are really honest with yourself, you will know that that's a struggle for your whole life. It's so easy to become entrapped by things that seem so important to us. What is it that I feel I could not live without? What is it that makes my life fall apart if it goes away from me? That's your master. That's the thing that matters you the most. There's only one person who will never leave you, never forsake you. There's only one person who will be with you through life, into the sickness of your life, even as you face death. There's only one person who will be able to be with you for all the ups and downs of your life, no matter what. There's only one person who will never fail you, and that's the God who loves you and rescued you. And he knows that freedom is found when you give yourself to him. That's why Jesus said, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And where Jesus said, whom therefore the Son sets free is free indeed. A lot of us walk around in shackles, don't we? God wants to set us free from that. Well, there's another thing we see in this passage. The second thing is God rescues us by working behind the scenes in hard times. This is important to see as well. God works, rescue begins in us by working behind the seams when God seems silent. When God seems silent. Do you ever have times in your life when it seems like God has abandoned you? He doesn't hear your prayers. He's not answering. He's not doing what you, he he doesn't seem to be paying attention. That's exactly what was going on in here in Genesis, in Exodus 1 and 2. Two, we're often prepared for rescue by going through bad circumstances and, and difficult times. Now, I hope you bring your own Bibles because I like to talk about more than just the verses that are there. If we had had room, we would have printed all of Exodus 1 and Exodus 2. But what you would notice if you looked at Exodus 1 and 2 is that God is conspicuously absent from Exodus 1 and 2. We find them in the 17th or so verse there about the, the, uh, uh, the midwives. We'll talk about them in a little bit. And then ultimately then in the 23rd verse is when God finally shows up when it says, uh, God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Isaac and Jake. God saw and God knew. But until that time, these people are feeling like God is silent from them. God is not working in their lives. God is conspicuously absent from the first two chapters until God makes his appearance. And this is part of the way this book is written. I think the writer of Exodus wants us to see the desperate situation that these people had been in for hundreds of years, lifetimes. This is intentional, I think, in the artistry of the book. God appears to be absent, but he is working even when he appears to be silent, and that's the point I want you to get. 
When you go through hard times, difficult times, times when God seems to not be listening to your prayers, God is still working even though it feels as if he's not hearing you, not answering your prayer. That's what seems to be happening. Look at what happens in this story. Things keep getting worse for these people. First of all, Pharaoh gets uh, uh, um, uh, you know, afraid of people, so he enslaves the people. That's not a good thing. Then he tells the midwives, it's not working, Let's, uh, uh, that, that uh, you kill the babies. Kill all the babies, he tells these midwives. They, and then second, and then thirdly, Pharaoh makes it illegal to even raise a boy. You're supposed to throw him into the water. Terrible times. But, and this is important, even those things which looked like bad things at that time to all those people turned out to have something God could bring good out of it. The writer of this book wants us to see that everything that looked to be bad actually turned out to be good. It seemed like God was silent, but God was working even in the midst of silence. Did I, you understand what I'm saying? God is working. For example, Pharaoh says, I'm going to enslave these people. But what does this do but rather strengthen them as the people of Israel? He enslaved them because they might rise up against him someday if another army came in. Well, what's going to happen now that they've been enslaved for generations? They're going to be even more eager to get this Pharaoh out of their system, right? Yeah, it didn't work out like Pharaoh thought. Then Pharaoh seeks to kill the male infants. Uh, but yet what happens is that when he seeks to kill those male infants, the midwives don't do it, and they continue to thrive. doesn't work. Pharaoh, the most powerful human being in the world at that time, is impotent against the purposes of God for his people. You see? Now, we see that. But those people had a hard time seeing that. You see, we can often see God's work in someone else even than we can in our, even better than we can in our lives, right? It didn't look good. I mean, if you're praying, Lord, set us free, and instead we get worse decrees. And then God says, I, you're not allowed to have any male boys. And as you know the story, of course, then uh, uh, Moses' parents uh, say, you want him, thrown, want him thrown in the water? Okay, we'll throw him in the water. We'll just make a boat for him, Right? So he's there in the water, in a boat, and who finds him but Pharaoh's daughter. Do you see the irony in that? Pharaoh's decree, which was intended to kill God's people, ended up becoming the means by which God's deliverer could be saved and rescued and brought actually into Pharaoh's home. Do you see the irony of that? Pharaoh is weak, even though he's strong by these world standards. But again, how can you know that if you're the people of Israel? You can't know it. You can't see it. Even Moses, who murdered a man, we'll see that uh, as we kind of work our way through this story. He, this murder that led to his exile made him into the humble person he needed to be in order to be willing to follow God in the middle of the troubles that he led those people through. Everything that seemed to be bad turned out to be good. Does that sound reminiscent of last week for those of you who are here? When Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for bad but God meant it for good. God can take even the worst mistakes you've ever made or the worst events that have ever happened to you, as evil as they have been, and God can bring good out of them. You want proof of that? Look at Good Friday. What happened on Good Friday? The worst evil in the worst way at the worst time on all history, human beings killed the Son of God. The worst thing that could ever happen. And yet we call it not Black Friday, but Good Friday, because God brought good out of it. Yes, God is working in your life even during the silences. 
When heaven's locked in silence, I ask, oh, Lord, how long? See, we feel that. that that's in the Psalms. Read them. You'll see it. We have those honest feelings. Lord, where are you? But he says, but I will praise you in the midst of the night. You know, weeping may endure for the night, but joy cometh in the morning. Right? So, God rescues us by using hard times. He's working behind the scenes. Number three, God rescues us by using unexpected people and circumstances. Unexpected people and circumstances. This is, seems to be like God just loves doing this. He loves turning our worldly expectations upside down. He loves lifting up those who are down and putting down those who are up. Why? If this world's upside down, that would make sense, wouldn't it? The people who are up, maybe they need to be put down a little bit. People who are down, maybe need to be real put, brought up a little bit. Jesus, uh, Bible says that he will humble those who are exalted and exalt those who are humbled. And Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So it's all the way through the Bible. We've already seen him in the book of Genesis all over the place. God continually turns upside this down the structures of the system by calling the second child to be his favorite child. You know, it was Isaac, not Ishmael. It was Jacob, not Esau. It was Judah, not Reuben. All the way through. It was Leah, the unloved wife, who bore the one through whom God's lineage would become through Judah. It was not Rachel, the loved wife. God is always doing these kinds of things. And here we see it in chapter 1 and 2. There's something that you didn't notice, but I'm going to notice it. I'm going to help you notice it. If you were to read through all of chapter 1 and 2, you would recognize, if you paid attention, that all the heroes of chapter 1 and 2 are women. All the heroes of chapter 1 and 2 are women. There's only two guys in chapters 1 and 2. And one of them's wicked. <laughs> And the other one's foolish. Kind of true for men, right? <laughs> the wicked one is Pharaoh. The foolish one is Moses. He was given all this opportunity, squandered it in a, a fit of rage, right? Killed the guy. Lost the guy. These are not the heroes of chapter 1 and 2. Yes, God seems to be silent, but God is working through some very important women. There are three heroic women found in the first chapter, and I want you to see these are unexpected people, not the ones you would have expected. God delights in doing that. First of all, we see the, the midwives in chapter 1. The midwives are told that they are to kill the babies, right? It says, so um, the, then the king of Egypt, verse 15, I couldn't print this for you, but here it is. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is son, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, he shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The, women, the midwives said to the Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. <laughs> I don't know what that meant. They were vigorous. But in any case, they practiced civil disobedience. These, mid, these uh, midwives, and this is so significant. Midwives, generally speaking, were childless women. General, not always, but often they were childless women who had given their lives to bringing other women's children into the world. So, you know the social structure for women was not really very high. But if you were a woman who had no child, 
you were at the bottom of the structure. You were at the bottom. And God used those women. They stood up for the right, and God honored their faithfulness. The next verse tells us that ultimately they had children. And here's something that you may not notice. What are the names of these two women? Their names are Shipra and Puah. What is the name of Pharaoh? We don't know. The most powerful human being on the planet. His name is not even recorded anywhere in Exodus so that scholars are divided as to who exactly was this Pharaoh. We don't know the name of the Pharaoh, but we know the name of the two women. Do you know how important that is in the writing? God lifted up these two women, and God used them. God wanted to know how important they were. Women have always been important in God's work, and it should be still and is so still today. So we see it in the first hero are the the Hebrew midwives. The second hero found in chapter 2 is Moses' mother. She has a baby. She's been told to cast the baby into the sea. She says, you want him in the sea? Okay, we'll put him in. We'll just put a little boat to protect him. She, too, practices uh, civil disobedience. She throws her son to the river, but on a raft, and she does it near to the place where Pharaoh's daughter seems to be bathing. Yeah, Moses' mother is another important figure in this. And then who's the other third woman hero in this story? It's Pharaoh's daughter herself. She's bathing with her entourage there, and they see this cute little baby making noise. He's a few months old. He's making noise, and she sees it. Heart goes out to him, and she lifts him up out of the water, which is the name Moses, by the way, to lift up out of the water. That wasn't his Hebrew name, to lift up out of the water. It's reminiscent of crossing the Red Sea a little bit later, but you can think about that. She lifts him up out of the water. She says, look at this, a baby boy from one of the Hebrew children. I want him in my family. So do you see the irony of this? Pharaoh has made a decree that all the babies should be killed, and his own daughter becomes the means by which God raises up a deliverer. God is always using unexpected people, unexpected circumstances. She saves, she saves, the, the, she becomes the means by which Moses is saved. Pharaoh is impotent in the face of these powerless women. Why? Because God uses the things which are not to say no to the things that are. That's why in 1 Corinthians it says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise, noble, or wealthy. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And the things which are nothing, nothing to bring down those that are, that are so that no one may boast before God. For let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Yeah, God may be working in your life in ways you had never expected. Never He's bringing you out of slavery from those things that enslave you. He's even using the silent moments of your life to work his will in the midst of all those things. And he's using many unexpected people to bring about his good things. And in fact, he may use you in a way you would never really expect. Don't sell yourself short. God can use you. He doesn't need all your gifts and abilities, not your money, nothing. He needs you. That's what he needs. Yeah. If you give yourself to him, he will use you. Now, these three things we see clearly in the book 
in the book, in the first couple of chapters here. Then ultimately it says in the 23rd verse that God is now going to show up in a profound way. And of course, what does he do? By go to this uh, disenfranchised ruler who's now off like Simba, <laughs> far away from the Lion King, right? He's off and away. He thinks he's failed. He thinks he's got no future. I'm saying this because well, I just watched the, the Lion King Jr. yesterday. Some of you remember that. He's off there, and now God comes to him, and he says, I've got a job for you. And now he's going to go back to the people. Yeah. But there's a fourth thing that you need to see as we close our time together. God rescues his people, number four, by sending his son, the ultimate Moses. By sending his son, the ultimate Moses. I want you to think for a moment as we just kind of wind down here, the many parallels to the person of Jesus from the life of Moses. You know, when Jesus was born, there was a king. And he decreed that all infants should be killed. That king's name was Herod. That baby's name was Jesus. And yet a child was born in the midst of that decree who would then ultimately liberate his people. That was true for Moses. It's true for Jesus. Moses went into the wilderness and then returned to deliver his people. <laughs> Jesus went into Egypt and then returned to deliver his people. And later went into the wilderness where he was baptized. And then he came to deliver his people. Jesus was sent, Moses was sentenced to, to die, but the sentence itself became a means of his becoming the prince who would deliver his people. Jesus was sentenced to die, but the sentence itself became the means by which he could become the prince and liberate his people. The difference is Moses didn't die, but Jesus did. Jesus died for us. That's why it's significant in Luke chapter 9 and verse 31 that Jesus goes up on a mountain of transfiguration. You can read about it there and other passages as well. He has a conversation with Moses and Elijah in that, in that story. Peter and James and John witnessed the event. And it says in that text, they discuss his departure. Moses is talking to Jesus about his departure. You know what the word is? Exodus. They're discussing Jesus' exodus. What are they discussing the time when Jesus will give his life as the ultimate liberator for all of his people. Jesus is the ultimate Moses, the ultimate liberator, the true prince who leads us on an exodus that liberates us from sin and death for all eternity. And it's not just for Jewish people. It's for all people forever. So look at Jesus. He will deliver you from slavery. He will work with you in the midst of difficult and dark times. He will use unexpected people and circumstances to bring about his rescue in your life. He has already brought rescue to you. Embrace his life given for you. Let's have prayer as we close. Lord Jesus, I'm thankful that you are always bringing about deliverance. I know that we often find ourselves enslaved. Let rescue begin in our hearts today. Let rescue work its way in our, over the things that enslave us. Help us to surrender to you and to allow you to do that work within us. Maybe there are some here today who've never quite understood this story about Jesus, who's the ultimate Moses, and they want to be set free from things they know that enslave them. May they today embrace the free gift of your rescue, which comes because of your death for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.